You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. About 15 years ago, I attended a Christmas play in Chicago at a megachurch named Willow Creek. Anybody ever hear Willow Creek before? Yeah, probably some of you. The play set the nativity story in the modern world. I think it was called Away in a Suitcase. And the, uh, and the, the basic plot line is that Mary and Joseph, um, their hotel is, is overbooked, double booked, and when they arrive, there's no room at the inn, so they have to sleep in the foyer of the hotel, I guess. And if I'm remembering correctly, Mary delivers baby Jesus there in the hotel foyer, and instead of placing him in a manger, she places him in the suitcase, away in a suitcase, yeah, okay. Um, the play sets the nativity story in the modern world to basically ask the question, if the nativity story happened today, could we, would we believe it? If God miraculously impregnated a teenage girl, uh, would anyone believe her and accept her as the mother of God? Or would we see her as mentally ill or you know, lying? The, the play kind of asks these questions subtly. And obviously this is a play that plays well, so to speak, in conservative or evangelical churches like Willow Creek, because the main point is to call Christians to really believe in the virgin birth and the, and the nativity story by fully confronting the strangeness of it and the miraculous nature of it. But if you think about it, the place question, if the nativity story occurred today, would we believe it? And even when I was, this is now 15 years ago, when I was watching this play, I thought to myself, well, no, the, the answer is kind of obviously no. <laughs> if, if a teenage girl told us that um, she was pregnant, then it was God himself who impregnated her with, with his own son, no less. You know, you'd think she was suffering from you know, a mental illness, is delusional, or, or is lying, and you would, you would be right about one of those options. We all... I think, I think we all know that. Uh, we don't have to think very hard about how we would react to such claims, which made the, the play backfire <laughs> for me when I saw it. Um, because again, its point was to make the nativity story and the virgin birth relatable, place it in the modern day, and therefore make it believable. But for me, it kind of did the exact opposite. And, and herein lies the problem with the way this story is often presented to us in the church. We're told that we have two options, two ways of reading the nativity story, which I call the fundamentalist way or the atheist way. The fundamentalist way is the literalist way, the only, and we're told it's the only way to find the story meaningful or valuable or spiritually enriching. The other option is the atheist reading, which means that one reads the story as you know, completely mythological and therefore devoid of any spiritual meaning or value. And if, you, if you're reading it as non-literal, it means that you're an atheist, so we're told. 
You might just not know it yet. Ironically, this is one area where both the fundamentalists and atheists agree. Both say that the story is hollow and meaningless unless you read it as entirely literal. And I suggest we reject both of those extremes on the grounds that neither arrives at the intended reading of the authors, the intended reading of the story, that the authors of Matthew and Luke, because we only find the nativity story in Matthew and Luke, Mark and John's gospel do not contain it. I had a professor in seminary, I went to Fuller here in Pasadena. Her name was Marguerite Schuster, and she once said, and it stuck with me all these years, perhaps we should honor God enough to understand how he has revealed himself in the scriptures rather than how we wish he did. I, I, I love that. It hit me like a ton of bricks when she said it. Perhaps we should honor God enough to understand how he has revealed himself in the text rather than how we wish he did. In other words, if God chose to speak through the mediums of myth and metaphor and symbol and parable and poetry, these, these so-called non-literal mediums, then maybe we should honor God enough to accept that rather than reject that and attempt to literalize what was never literal in the first place. I actually think the mediums of myth and metaphor and parable and symbol and poetry naturally lend themselves to spiritual revelation. Think about it. In the same way that, that the things of the spirit are hidden and unseen, so are the meanings of symbols and metaphors. One must learn to interpret and discern and read the signs, as it were to see past the mere outward appearance of things in order to see into their essence or meaning or truth. In this way, symbols and metaphors, I think, are analogous to the relationship between body and spirit, the so-called physical world and spirit world. We're all familiar with this idea that the physical body is just a vehicle or a vessel of the spirit. And we're, we're familiar with that idea. I don't really like that dualism anymore, but it's a good analogy for how we should read the Bible often. The myths, the symbols, the metaphors, the parables, the poetry that we find in there are like the physical body for an immaterial spirit, which is the meaning of a text, the meaning of the metaphors, the symbols, the parables, the poetries, etc. In, you know, in this way, the, the myths, the symbols, the metaphors, the parables, and the poetry are perfect mediums, by my estimation, perfect mediums to communicate you know, spiritual ideas, perfect mediums to enlighten readers or hearers of spiritual truths. I think this is why they were so often used, these mediums, these genres. Which means to me that you know, if you don't like symbols and metaphors and poetry, if you're, not, if you're not into poetry and metaphor and mythology and symbols, and that's okay, you don't have to be. But if you're not into that, if that's not your jam, you know, the, maybe the Bible isn't for you. Maybe, maybe religion and spirituality isn't for you. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be everybody's thing. But 
one has to respect these things, it seems to me, if one is going to respect and understand the text, the way it actually comes to us. Otherwise, one is just going to do violence to it and completely miss the point. And so I want to propose a third way of reading the nativity story today. Not a fundamentalist or atheist way, but what I call a spiritual reading of the story. And in order to do this, one must understand the meaning of the symbols present. To be clear, in a way, I'm actually, I think I'm actually reading the story literally, in the sense that I think the story was meant to teach us literal spiritual truths, literal spiritual truths about the divine and about our experience of God and what it means to be God's people in the world. I think the story was meant to teach those literal truths, so to speak. And with that in mind, let's take a deeper look at the, at the nativity story here today, starting with the virgin birth itself. The idea of a God coming down from on high and impregnating a human woman with his own offspring, this idea is not original to Christianity. It actually predates Christianity by centuries and is actually found in the Greco-Roman tradition, Greco-Roman mythology. The Greco-Roman world Jesus was born into, he was born into a Hellenized Israel, meaning Greekized, but he was born into a Roman-occupied Israel. Rome supplanted the, the Greek Empire. But the Greco-Roman world Jesus was born into was full of a pantheon of what was called demigods. Demigods were half-human, half-god hybrids, like Hercules, Perseus, Achilles, and dozens of others. These demigods were the product of Zeus or Jupiter, Zeus in the Greek tradition, and Zeus was renamed Jupiter when Rome conquered Greece. They're basically the same de deity. These demigods were the product of the chief father god, Zeus or Jupiter, coming down, having relations with a human woman, often a virgin, Therefore, the child would be both human and divine and have supernatural powers and work heroic deeds and become famous. And upon death, would usually often be translated into the heavens and take his rightful place next to his father God, where he himself would be fully deified. Sound familiar? Does that ring a bell? Is it just mere coincidence that's the story? Why would the ancient authors of Matthew and Luke's gospel place Jesus in that tradition? That's the question. Why would they do that? Seems to me that's a good question. It's not hard to understand, in my opinion. The message was that Jesus of Nazareth was summoned to revere and to take seriously like the other demigods you're all familiar with, you first century Greco-Roman people. The message was that he was a true son of God, a true son of God, as great or greater than Hercules, Perseus, Achilles, etc. 
Jesus, of course, wasn't the son of Zeus or Jupiter, but the son of the one true God they believed, the Hebrew God. But nevertheless, like many other so-called sons of God back then, Jesus, too, was exalted and deified. An apotheosis, apotheosis, God, man becoming God. He, too, underwent that transfiguration and therefore is worthy to be revered and followed. And he has authority. He's divine. Do you see that? Another aspect of the nativity story to pay close attention to here is the Bethlehem star found in Matthew's nativity tale. It's not in Luke. We're told that the wise men, or the magi, followed this strange object, this strange light in the night sky to Bethlehem. The magi say in Matthew 2, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and we've come to pay him homage. They believed the star signified the birth of a king, the king of the Jews in this case, because this star was over Bethlehem, the so-called city of David. David, of course, was the greatest king in Israel's history. This was common in the ancient world, this idea of a celestial event signifying the birth or the death of a king. Most famously, a comet was said to have appeared in the sky upon Julius Caesar's death, and it was believed that this was Caesar's soul ascending to heaven, where Caesar would take his rightful place next to his father, Zeus. And therefore, Caesar was to be fully deified upon arriving there. And so, and so the Bethlehem star was a way of saying that Jesus was a divine king, like Caesar. And was even greater than Caesar, because to deify Jesus in the way that Caesar was deified was intended, I think, as a dig, a kind of political satire, a dig at Caesar. Caesar is a god born in a mansion. Jesus is a god born in a manger. Caesar is a god born to wealth and prestige and power. Jesus is a god born to poverty, obscurity, to an oppressed people, an occupied nation under Roman control. Caesar is a God that oppresses and murders. Jesus is a God that liberates and gives life. Caesar is a God far removed from everyday life, tucked away in the safety and security of a palace somewhere. Jesus is a God that is found in the muck, in the mire of everyday life with us. A God who shares in our sufferings, who stands in solidarity with the suffering, who, a God who, who eats and drinks with us, a God who lives and dies as we do. The original first century audience of Matthew's gospel, they, they would have picked up on all this. They would have seen this stark juxtaposition between Caesar and Jesus, between the so-called sons of God and the son of God, Emmanuel. They would have seen these similarities. They would have gotten this that the meaning, the spirit of the text would have been apparent to them. 
And so here we see how the ancient authors, I believe, many scholars do, place Jesus into this Greco-Roman context in order to critique empire, in order to critique worldly conceptions of power, in order to critique the common conceptions of God of the day. This is why the Gospels were scandalous and provocative back then. To be clear, they were not scandalous and provocative because they were mythological or non-literal and, and riffed on these themes. But they were, they were scandalous and provocative because they, because they exalted and deified a peasant nobody. Jesus of Nazareth. They were scandalous and provocative back then because they functioned as a critique of empire, a critique of Caesar, a critique of power. The Gospels, let me say this again, the Gospels were not, they were not scandalous and provocative back then because they were rife with myth and metaphors and symbols. That's not why they were provocative. They were provocative because they exalted and deified a peasant nobody and thereby functioned as a critique of empire critique of Caesar and a critique of certain conceptions of God and, and God's power. And yet today, many Christians who, I'm not seeing the folks here, <laughs> I get fired in a lot of churches for preaching this message because a lot of Christians today would hear this and find what was provocative and scandalous about what, what the pastor said this morning wasn't that the Gospels functioned as a critique of empire, but that he was saying that they're full of myth and symbols and metaphors and perhaps, perhaps we're not literal. That was, that's how evangelicals and modern Christians think the text is provocative and scandalous. No! It's provocative and scandalous because it functioned as a, as a critique of power. The demonstration that God is not in cahoots with the wealthy and the elite and the powerful, but is in solidarity with the poor and the oppressed and the least of these. It's funny, when I, when I was growing up, um, I was told that if I changed the way that I read the Bible, if I changed it to this, to a more liberal, read, so-called liberal reading, that the Bible would just lose its value. I would find it utterly meaningless. It would become hollow and pointless. I wouldn't be able to enjoy it anymore. This being the third Sunday of Advent, we're talking about joy, Right? Well, I want to say that my enjoyment of studying the Bible has not lessened over the years because of my shift. Because I've gained a more informed understanding of it. Rather, quite the opposite, actually. Yes, I've lost my naive belief in things like biblical inerrancy and biblical literalism. I no longer think that the Bible fell out of heaven one day, but is in fact the work of imperfect human hands wrestling with what it means to be the people of God in the world. But that understanding has actually made the Bible more meaningful and enjoyable for me. Not less. It's an incredible work of literature. It's, it's a work of art, and it contains timeless wisdom, timeless spiritual truths. And so my purpose in sharing all this with you today you know, it isn't to rob you of your joy <laughs> um, for the scriptures or the nativity story in particular. 
I'm not trying to ruin Christmas here. <laughs> or ruin your enjoyment of the scriptures, but rather I want to enhance it. I, I believe that fundamentalism, actually, fundamentalism is the single biggest cause of atheism and why people stop enjoying their faiths and stop enjoying their religious traditions and the Bible itself. In other words, it's not actually science and philosophy or liberal Christians like me that's driving people out of the church and killing their faith, but it's fundamentalism. And evangelicalism is doing this with its ridiculous and rigid reading of the Bible, among other things. That's what's robbing people of their joy regarding Christianity and their faith and the scriptures, more than anything else, in my opinion. So my, so my hope is that I am enhancing your joy here this morning, your appreciation, your enjoyment of the scriptures in this story. My hope is that by understanding the Bible better, you know, we will find it more enjoyable and interesting, not less. That's my hope, at least. This is my Maybe it's a leap of faith. That's okay. This is my leap of faith. <laughs> All right. There's my talk today. And as always, we like to open the floor for comments or questions, reflections. Anything goes. Um, yeah, how did, this, how did this strike you here today? Um, did I ruin Christmas for you? Gosh, oh. <laughs> Anna's like, no. Yeah, Leanne. Um, my thought is with the nativity scene, and I feel this way about Jesus's whole journey, but is the mistake is to view it solely as a one-time event instead of as a template. Um, like who's the poor mother in a manger now? And if we're only talking about like, did this happen once? 2,000 years ago. Like, we're not looking at what it opens up for, like, I don't, like, I say probably not, but that's beside the point. Like, who's, who's alone in a manger now? Like, who's, like, how can that point to, like, you know, how we treat people instead of just viewing it as a one-time thing? I think his whole life and birth is a template. Yeah, good stuff. Or as Joseph Campbell said, it's, it's an archetype. You know, if you're into story, if you're into narrative, it's, it's an archetypal story. You know, and you raise a really good question. Who is the one in the manger today who's denied room at the end, so to speak? Or, you know, Jesus, upon his birth, we're told in Matthew's Gospel that his parents had to flee to Egypt to escape the clutches of King Herod, who wanted him dead. And when they immigrated back to Israel a couple years later, as the story goes, the text says this was done to fulfill the, what the prophet said, out of Egypt I have called my son to place Jesus within the Exodus tradition, right? But again, the question is, who are the refugees and the immigrants and the dispossessed among us today? That's, that's the question. Jesus comes to us as a refugee, a stranger, in a sense. Immigrant. He had to immigrate back. Who are those among us today that fall into that category, that experience, being dispossessed you know, and refugees? 
They are Christ in our midst. They are God in our midst. As Jesus himself says in Matthew 25, we're told, I was the hungry person you fed. I was the stranger you welcomed. That was me. Yeah, that's, that's it. You get it. I mean, now, a literalist would say, is Jesus literally saying that every time we encounter a stranger, that's him incarnate, like physically? Come on. But in a way, yes, that's him. <laughs> that's what he's saying. That's, that's me. But those with eyes to see, right? See. That's a really good point. Um, other thoughts? Questions? Yeah, Jason. Um, yeah, I think when you talk about turning the, well, yeah, definitely fundamentalists are like the, yeah, the worst thing for long-term religion. Absolutely agreed with that. <laughs> turning so many young people away, longer term, killing, yeah, that's sad. The, but as far as the Bible being, you know, different ways of looking at it, I think um, for myself, yeah, it's one thing to look at it like as a book of magic stories, you know, and this is the magic we particularly believe in, you know, um, and that's okay, but it is kind of slim. Um, but it is a lot more, if you put it in the context of like people who weren't very literate for centuries and centuries and people who didn't have like, you know, we go to school now and we have, you get your textbooks at the beginning of the year and those are the books you're gonna have all year and then the next year and the next year. And you know, for most of history, people didn't have that. And if you think of it as more of a guidebook or a book of knowledge, or a, a manual for living, which is sometimes what fundamentalists also call it. But if you take a different approach to it, and you think this is what people had to, as a manual, a guidebook for living from God, and it has to be like your psychology book, and it's your sociology book, and it's your you know history book, and it's your culture book, and it's your social studies book, all like combined into one, um, it becomes a lot more fascinating document, you know a much more interesting document, you know, to look at and be like, what are the, you know, what are they teaching the kids and the next generation and the next generation about what is humanity and how does humanity function with each other? And, you know, it's also your poetry book and it's your song book and, you know, it's pretty amazing when you look at it like that. Yeah, I agree, 100%. But uh, you gotta burn the bridge of naivete in order to get there. <laughs> um, yeah, that's good stuff. Other thoughts? Okie dokie. Oh, got it in just at the wire, buddy. That's cool. Let me get you the mic. <laughs> Sometimes I'm worried like I don't give people enough time to think, you know. Like, do you have a question? Tell me now. <laughs> um. I'm just curious if you can expand on, or maybe you did sort of do it and I missed it, but the idea you said early on of literal truths uh, when talking about, you know, spiritual ideas or something not physical or literal maybe, because, or at least when I hear literal, I think of more sort of physical, tangible realm, but then you went yeah. on to talk about more abstract, like, Sure. spiritual ideas so what exactly does it's a great question what do we mean by literal spiritual truths yeah. well it's predicated on this idea that there are things about us you know like ideas our, our attitudes 
um, you know, our beliefs, our values that are immaterial, right? Our, our beliefs and values are, you know, these things live in our heads, so to speak, right? They're not material, they're kind of immaterial. But yet they're literally there. <laughs> in a sense, you know, they're, they're non-physical, but they exist. Um, and, and even the concept of love, wh where is love? Sh show me love. Well, it's a concept, it's an idea, it's, it's a way of life, it's a value, you might say. Um, you know, so when I speak of, you know, these, these stories contain literal spiritual truths, that's what I'm talking about. Literal spiritual life lessons about how to be fully human and embrace our, our divinity and our connection to each other and to how we think of the divine or, you know, that kind of idea. Um, does that make sense? Does, does that help? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I don't want to overly define the spiritual, but that's, that's what I'm thinking is about how I define the spiritual in this regard. Um, yeah, good question. Yeah. Other thoughts? Okie doke. Well, let us conclude by saying our benediction together. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. God bless you. Um, for those of you who are going to be here next Sunday, we'll see you then. But otherwise, Merry Christmas. Have a safe holiday. <laughs>